a code red for humanity, curb emissions and dramatically reduce consumption or face a world that is fundamentally different. When Kermit the Frog sang, it's not easy being green. I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, 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 blah. It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. East tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista Series 3, The Sky's the Limit. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one green-based podcast. You join us in a week of yet more turbulence for the Johnson government. It seems Partygate simply won't go away, even as the PM legs it to India. The trail of the Volivons has followed him all the way. Our man with his own bag of twiglets and a party popper of environmental joy is the green entrepreneur Dale Vince. Morning, Dale. Brilliant. Love it. Morning, Ian. It's funny, isn't it, that two days ago, it looked as if the man with nine lives had survived again. And then 48 hours later, it's kind of, he's up to his neck in it once more. Yeah, I thought you said the man with nine lies there. <laughs> well, that's about, yeah, that would underestimate uh, the, the, would. The, uh, the events, of course. But what's fascinating, when people like David Davis and Steve Baker, these kind of right-wing Brexiteer, former loyalists of Johnson are saying the gig is over, you've got to go. And that that takes a completely different turn. These aren't the usual suspects that didn't like Boris in the first place. These are the very people that put him in office. Yeah, to do one thing, though, and he's done that for them. So now I think he's dispensable. And, uh, you know, these are the same people that formed the net zero scrutiny group, aren't they? The people that are against net zero policies and yeah. wokeness, according to Lord Frost in, uh, in number 10. Incredible. Uh, people. Uh, so I, I think if they say Johnson should go, I suddenly find myself in the other camp. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, you think, hang on a second. Who do I believe in? This is what sort of twisted Twilight Zone game are we playing here? I, I have no idea who to align with. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. Life is like that, but that's fun. It's, it's fun to be adrift sometimes. Yeah. Do you remember, Dale? Let's start with this. Do you remember? Cast your mind right back if you can. Do you remember a thing called the European Union? Mm, yeah, I think it was, uh, was it the evil empire? That's the one, yeah, that wrecked all of our lives uh, and uh, and caused havoc across the world. And, and things are so good now that we've left, aren't they? Everything's sorted, isn't it? Everything, it was like somebody yeah, yeah. just waved a magic wand and our lives all became And, and everything was suddenly fucked up when yeah. it came to trade and, and the economy. And, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and all Which, those things, even immigration. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Off the scale compared to it was before. Completely, completely. Um, interesting directive from the EU. They're urging its citizens to drive less uh, and work from home to reduce reliance on Russian oil and gas. So it, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Their, their motivation isn't necessarily environmental, but it, the upshot is that it will achieve the same aim. Yeah, and this was around a couple of weeks ago, actually, and it started with the International Energy Agency. Uh, making the same recommendations like, you know, knock one degree off your thermostat and, yeah. uh, you know, work from home three days a week is the advice and that kind of stuff. They're talking about the average person in Europe saving, which doesn't include us, obviously, 500 quid a year by taking these steps, you know, turn down aircon, turn down heating, drive less. And, and you know, it's all good stuff. Uh, but as you say, the really frustrating thing is 
it's only come about because there's a war in Europe, but, but there's been this bigger war against the climate crisis for some decades now. And you'd think it's brilliant advice, you know, make your fuel bills smaller, pollute less and help us get off fossil fuels, not Russian fossil fuels per se, just fossil fuels. Brilliant advice. Where's it been all our lives? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it's not like you have to, I was having this conversation with somebody in the week about this. It's sort of a no-brainer, isn't it? It's like I often use the milk bottle example, that we were recycling milk bottles before people even had heard of the word recycling. Um, Hmm. It would have been unthinkable. And and they were delivered in electric vehicles. uh, Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. As me old nan used to say, only a twat would throw out a milk bottle. (laughs) So, you know, it's (laughs) it's been around for a long time. And similarly, with so many things like you're using a bit of public transport, adjusting your boiler settings, it's like all of this is actually in your own interest. It's not you haven't got to give anything up, really, fundamentally, to create a better planet. I, I just think it's tragic that we couldn't be given that advice in order to fight the climate crisis, but we can be yeah. given that advice in order to fight Russia. It's I mean, interesting. So it's on. taken a it's taken COVID and a war from Russia yeah. in order to get to kind of the the very narratives that you've been espousing for many years. Yeah. Why Why couldn't we give ourselves that advice? Why couldn't the EU and the IEA? Why couldn't they be telling us this? You yeah. know, because. You'd hope some people will pay attention. I don't know. It's a funny thing. It's obviously uh, a matter of human behavior and perception. But I guess the, so. the war in the Ukraine is a more imminent event and, and perhaps feels like more of an existential threat than the climate crisis does. And that's always been the climate crisis problem. It's, it's distant in terms of geography and time. Uh, you know, we, we just push it to the back of our minds and get on with uh, life as we know it until, of course, the Russians invade Ukraine and Europe has 40% of its gas from Russia, and suddenly we're on a precipice of not being able to do life as we know it. Yeah, true. Let's stick with politics in a different way. Uh, This comes from Anthony, who says, uh, Dale, how surprised were you at the response you received for flying the Palestinian flag at Forest Green last weekend? I guess if I'd thought about it, then I probably wouldn't be surprised, because I know that it's a fairly controversial topic and anybody that speaks up for the Palestinians is going to get some flack, right? I mean, that happens. Actually, it hasn't been that bad. What there has been is an amazing amount of support uh, for that, for what I wrote on social media and for the flying of the flag. And, and that's actually been incredible. I was I was in the Starbucks this morning just coming into town and a guy uh, just stopped me and said, I love what you posted the other day about, the, about Palestine, shook my hand and walked away. And I was like, wow. Um, well, there it is. I, I mean, some people made the argument that, you know, sport and politics shouldn't mix. <laughs> that that seemed to be one of the big ones. Mm. Well, we, I mean, that happens all the time, you know, because we, we're a bit used to that. I mean, yep. p- politics gets involved in everything, doesn't it? It doesn't leave anything alone, right? Uh, that's one of my answers. So, But the other thing is, of course, we have a responsibility in our lives, whether whether we're, you know, operating as a football club or as individual people, we have a moral responsibility to speak out when we see bad things. Well, so I thought that at the weekend when the Archbishop of Canterbury got a load of stick for wading into the uh, conservative uh, policy on immigration with Rwanda, uh, and people are going, you know, you should butt out of life. It's like, hang on a sec. He, <laughs> he's the yeah. Archbishop of Canterbury, for goodness sake. He's a pretty senior figure in the world of religion. The last time I looked, the whole point of it, in fact, we often cry out and say, look, you know, if we want religion, let's make it more relevant. And naturally, if you're a religious leader of any kind, you have big opinions on the world you live in. And not just that, he actually sits in the House of Lords as well. So he is a politician. Yeah. And it was Easter, right? His kind of time yeah, of year right. for speaking out. You'd think. But uh, this this Rwandan thing, I mean, it has a number of different aspects. But the thing that 
kind of I think is a contradiction at the heart of it is if it's so good for the people that get here illegally, they get deported to Rwanda. If this new life in Rwanda is so good as Patel and Johnson says that it is, then how can it be a disincentive for people getting here illegally? Surely well, that's a very like, good point. Let's yeah, land sure. in Britain and then we're off to Butlins in Rwanda, man. Yeah, yeah. And why don't they go there? <laughs> <laughs> well, well that, that would solve a whole bunch of things, wouldn't it? So it doesn't um, add up. It doesn't add up, does it? It's going to be lovely for them in Rwanda and therefore they won't come to England because they know if they do, we're going to send them to Rwanda, which is lovely, by the way. Did we mention yeah, that? Fantastic first world country. It's got great roads, infrastructure, education, medical system, and the climate is brilliant. Man, they almost flogged it to me at one point. Crazy. Here's a story that you might actually agree with Boris Johnson on, Dale. He's attacked the prejudice against environmental policies. He's rejected the idea of ditching green levies on household energy bills to tackle the cost of living crisis. Of course, a lot of senior Tories mentioned Steve Baker again there, um, are calling on Johnson to drop the, the green levies that are attached to our energy bills. And Johnson's saying no. Is it a house point for Boris from Dale Vince? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he makes... So, sorry to put you in that cul-de-sac there. <laughs> I'm just going away to question my very being now after this. I'm going to sit in a corner and ponder yeah, a few things. Is. But look, he made he made the right points. These programs help keep bills down. They don't put them up. They've already kept bills down and they'll keep doing that. And if we take those levies off of energy bills, the Chancellor has to find the money. And we know he's famously tight, right? He won't find the money. So Absolutely. Johnson says, let's continue to fund them through energy bills. I do disagree about that. I think they should be funded through general taxation, and we should make Rishi Sunak pay for that, because otherwise it's a regressive measure, and the poorest among us who least can afford energy bills are paying these levies on their energy bills, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But apart from that, I agree with him, you know, and the net zero scrotum group have just got it all wrong. <laughs> net zero scrotum group, as they – I wonder if they put that on a name badge when they meet. Um <laughs> This is from Jane on Facebook. Uh, do you think there's any way to stop Bulb's former boss now earning 250000 a year as an advisor to his collapsed company? What did oh, you make of that? I couldn't believe that, right? The guy that crashed Bulb and already cost the public something approaching £5 billion pounds through his own, I don't know, stupidity, greed, I don't know what the combination was, has been kept on board, had his full salary, his full pre-crunch salary, to advise the administrators over the running of Bulb, which he did so well that it's in a right old mess. I don't understand it at all. I mean, he should have at least taken a haircut uh, pay-wise because uh, ultimately we're funding this. You know, we're paying this guy a load of money for having fucked up. Uh, Here's another story. Climate change and agriculture policy halves the insect population, uh, which is something you've been warning about for yonks. Yeah, this was a study from uh, parts of the world most affected already by the climate crisis. And what they're saying is that the combination of that and agricultural policy, which of course is poisonous, absolutely toxic to wildlife, uh, has caused a 49% decline in uh, insect life in those places. But they say at the same time, it's likely to be only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the story, which is a bit scary. But definitely wow. as, as a biker, right, as a, as a teenager, younger person, I remember riding down the roads on my bike, you know, and you had to have goggles or something on your face because if you didn't, and I 
did this quite often. Yes. You get a face full of flies, you know. Correct, yes. to keep your eyes open. But, you had fly eyeballs. But now, nothing. And a car, you know, most, I mean, most people listening to this will probably remember the days when, if you drove down the road in a car in the summer, your your windscreen got peppered with insects. Not right. anymore. They're just yeah. not there. What the, yeah, where, I mean, is this all about the kind of uh, policies of what agriculture can use? Uh, yeah, that it is. Wipe yeah, that out. Yeah, pesticides, fertilizers. Uh, you know, the monoculture approach to agriculture that we have as well creates wildlife deserts, and yeah. you know everything's been in terminal decline in our country for probably fifty years since modern agriculture came along post the Second World War, and we invented fertilizer and all that kind of stuff. Got it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we lament the um, the Brazilian rainforest, yeah, but uh, we destroyed our own. Matt on Twitter says, uh, gear change here, Dale. Is this the weekend for Forest Green Rover fans? Well, it may be. We've thought that for a couple of weekends now, but we are definitely, definitely edging so close. Uh, a point one at the weekend or a point dropped somewhere else. And yes, we're promoted. We're nailed on top three. I mean, right now, I still think we're nailed on real world top three because two clubs have to win their last three games and we have to lose our last four and they have to overturn a 14, 15 point goal difference in the process of for course. us not to be top three, which in the real world is not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen, is it? But yeah. as we discussed before, you do the maths on these things and, and, yeah. and work out that... You know, there there are Watford fans out there that are working out how they can still win the Premier League. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if all those teams lot, no, it can't happen. Uh, but you do the maths in in hope. It's a it's quite a nice, almost intrinsic, instinctive uh, element of being a football supporter, isn't it? That you yeah. follow follow those tables and you you just look at all the vague possibilities. But yeah, I think and, you're and right. It would be extraordinary if um, FGR uh, didn't go anywhere but upwards. The, the, the funny thing about the mathematical certainty is that uh, it's just extreme scenarios, extremely bad for us, extremely good for clubs yep. around us. And, you know, that combination of things is improbable. I'm sure there's a, a footballing statistician out there who could talk you through some of those unlikely moments that did actually come to fruition where the <laughs> the unthinkable <laughs> did happen. Seven teams against type all won uh, on the crucial day and, you know, the other... Uh, drop points, etc. But uh, few and far between. I don't think you've got anything to worry about. Let's stick with Forest Green Rovers. Road testing an electric coach uh, for the mm. Bristol game. Oh, yeah. That's, this should be great fun. So I first saw this coach at the Fully Charged show last year um, and thought it would be super cool. I've been waiting for nearly 10 years, actually, for electric coaches to be in the world since rescuing Forest Green. It was the, one of the big things I wanted us to do. We thought about making our own coach because there weren't any, but figured, you know, they were coming and we'd just sit tight and be patient. So we're going to take a trip to Bristol Rovers tomorrow in an electric coach that we've hired from a firm in London. It's a Chinese coach. And we'll be the very first football team, probably sporting team in the world to travel to an event in that manner, which is pretty cool. And I'm hoping that for next season in League One, we'll get our own coach and we'll do, I don't know how many games, but we'll do as many as we can yeah. in an electric team bus. And it's interesting because most of your staff there, Rob Edwards, Henry Stalins, have all got electric cars as well. So. Yeah, this even is the, the kit man. Even the kit man's got an electric even van. The, yeah, yeah, you'd have to be a, a fool to turn up at Forest Green Rovers <laughs> in a big old diesel. Okay? You, you might be getting your P45. So, tell me about the electric coach, though, because I think most people listening to this will go, hang on a second, how far do you get an electric coach? Do you have to travel over the course of three weeks to get there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's got a 180-mile range. It's otherwise, I think, 40, 50-seater. This particular one... 
wouldn't suit us for the season, doesn't have a toilet, doesn't have enough luggage space. But uh, we're talking to the manufacturers in China uh, and they're specking one that will suit us and we're just waiting to see what that's going to cost. And other than that, look, as a coach, you look at it, you wouldn't know the difference. If you sat behind it, you probably would because the air would be a bit cleaner and uh, 180 miles between recharges. But with these super fast charges on the motorway, which run at 350 kilowatts, I think we're looking at maybe one hour to charge up or something like that, which is just incredible. Yeah, you just build that in, don't you? So, Uh, Question from Chris on Facebook. Are wholesale energy prices settling down at all now? What is the current direction of travel? Well, of course, if you listen to some of that select committee this week, I think it was the head of Scottish Energy, it was quite emotional and disturbing when he, he... literally said we don't really know what to do uh, the cost of living cry you know we have no idea what yeah. we can physically any longer do without government intervention yeah i mean that's fair right government intervention should have taken place a very long time ago um but it hasn't yep. and uh, and i think it still won't i, I think that uh, you know there's a tightness around the treasury that that will refuse to intervene properly for the sake of people that are suffering, you know, uh, struggling to pay their energy bills, it's just not going to happen. I mean, this is driven by global events for sure. We were more unprepared than most European countries for sure, but that kind of doesn't matter. It is what it is. And I mean, government taxes are making energy bills higher than they should be to the tune of, I don't know, some 300 quid a year. Uh, you know, they could at least take that away, but they won't even do that. But, um, to answer the question, energy prices have settled down into this new crazy place, really. Uh, they're high, historically very high. The the war in Ukraine came along and, and peaked them just momentarily, but they're back down into the normal crazy place now. And all of the future forecasts that we're looking at from an analyst that do this kind of thing for a living say that they're going to stay high for two, maybe three years Um, I don't know why. I don't know why they're going to come down after that period of time. But most important thing that we can do as a country, apart from drive less, turn a thermostats down, work from home, you know, all that good advice from the EU, is actually to invest in getting ourselves off of fossil fuels because the global commodity market has set the crazy price for fossil fuels, even when we make it in the North Sea ourselves. We need to build our own renewables fleet, get ourselves 100% energy independent and solve this problem forever. This from V on Twitter. Why is George Monbiot uh, so vocally set against your green gas project? That's a good question, right? And I've asked him this on Twitter this week because he's come out and called it ecologically illiterate and a catastrophe for the environment. And I'm like, George, why are you saying that? You know, what's your point? What is it about growing grass that looks like a catastrophe from a wildlife point of view? So far, no answer. He said, He's read everything on our website about it. Um, yeah. Can I send him something else? And, uh, you know, I'm just about to tweet today to say, you don't need something else. You've made a conclusion. And it's not like a little one. You know, you're calling it illiterate and a catastrophe. So tell me why. Because I think he doesn't understand it. I think it's some knee-jerk thing, you know, from a guy that thinks he knows everything about the environment and just hasn't researched it properly. But you might think, and this always surprises me, and it sometimes comes from you know the least likely quarters i mean he would you know describe himself as a, a an activist and the environment is central to all of that that he would firstly like ring you up or something or at least drop you an email and go tell us more dale but but secondly you might think he would be aware that if this was coming from you then there were some sound credentials within it that are worth exploring 
Yeah, I think those are fair points. And I would add to that that, you know, George would think of himself as a serious journalist as well, somebody that researches stuff before he concludes on them. And I don't think he's done that in this case. And we've actually worked together on legal challenges to the government's planning policy, for example. So it's not like we don't know each other, have each other's email address. So you're quite right could have reached out. Uh, Interestingly, we're about to publish, probably in about two weeks' time, a report that we commissioned from Imperial College London that looks into green gas and the claims that we've made that there's enough grass to power all of Britain's homes from gas made that way in particular, and to look at the economic benefits and and any potential wrinkles and stuff like that. And the draft that I've seen this week does that and more. It's very exciting. So uh, I'll definitely share that with George and we'll see if he... uh, if he changes his mind, but um, he, he's not that important in this. Quite, quite frankly, the yeah. opportunity for green gas in Britain is 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 incredible. You know, we agonise over Russian gas, which is four percent of our gas supply. But truly, we have to get off of fossil gas. Heat pumps are not the answer. We've commissioned a separate report into heat pumps to back up what we're saying about that as well, because it seems like when we say it, nobody listens. But uh, if we get some serious academics to say it, then maybe we will get a bit of traction. There it is. And that is it for this episode. Dale, we'll speak in a week. Nice one. Thank you, Ian. Don't forget, of course, you can follow this podcast from your podcast provider so you get each new episode automatically. Leave a review there too. Really important bit. Follow Dale on social media. That is twitter.com slash dalevince and facebook.com slash dalevince. Zero carbon east off.